an A&E original podcast. The message was the song that uh, broke all the mold for hip-hop. It was socially relevant. It had commentary. It had substance. And to me, to this day, I mean, it's one of the greatest songs of all time, but hands down, it's definitely the greatest hip-hop song of all time. Even without the record label, we were out there. We were out there spreading, you know, hip-hop, you know, to the masses before we had a record deal. It's not even about being relevant in a, in a commercial sense. As long as we're relevant to the culture and to each other, you know what I mean? We already paid our dues. We already put our, you know, our work in and all that. And we could just sit back and rest on our laurels, but the fact that we don't is a testament to our love and our passion for this culture. In the words of a tribe called Quest, industry rule number 4080, record company people are shady. In this episode, we talk to Grandmaster Melly Mel and legendary MC Shah Rock about the lovely world of the law. Or, in other words, how the music industry is indeed an industry and that lawyers, management, representation, deal-making, money, and trust are all ingredients in the complex recipe for making hip-hop while also trying to make a living. Born in the Bronx, raised in the streets from coast to coast and worldwide, these are the stories, the moments in time, the places and faces, the origins of hip-hop. Hosted by me, Grandmaster Kaz. Let's take this from the top. In the early days of hip-hop, the block party and mixtape era, the music was something you had to experience live. Even if you picked up a mixtape for yourself or heard one in an OJ car or a dope track in a friend's ride or house party, that was it. There were no record labels scouting these acts. In fact, you couldn't even hear hip-hop on the radio. It was treated like folk music, a novelty. What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Shaw Rock. The Funky Four Plus One More. We were the premier MC slash rap group, you know, who helped set the standards for uh, hip hop culture, along with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. We were battle rappers, you know, in, the, in New York City. You know, thousands of people, hundreds of people come from all over just to hear us rhyme, you know, on, on the stage. And when we stood on that stage and we saw how the people would light, they light us up. Even back in 19, you know, the, the late 1978 or 79s, and they would just like they light us up. Or if Shawrock had a birthday party, they would come from all over the world, you know, to celebrate, you know, who who I was at the time. It was like a feeling that you you couldn't even imagine because you had your peers, you had people who you went to school with, you had um, you know mothers that were allowing their kids to go to these jams, you know, and 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 hope hope that they would come home safely. But at the same time, it was like a feeling that I'll never forget. And at the time, we didn't even think about records. Records wasn't even even thought of. We were just rocking for the love of the culture and building the culture forward. We did a lot, you know, within 1979. You know, we were the first, you know, rap, authentic rap group, you know, from the streets of New York to have a record deal. And so we were already, you know, going down, playing for different clubs and different areas and different venues. And so in 1979, we had our rap song out that was called Rapping and Rockin' House. That was our first record, right? With that first record, we were the first hip-hop group to ever play in punk rock clubs. So we introduced hip-hop to punk rock. We used to go down to the Ritz, the Mud Club, 
you know, the um, the kitchen. And so um, even without the record label, we were out there. We were out there. We were out there spreading, you know, hip hop, you know, to the masses before we had a record deal. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As much as mainstream corporate music was dismissive of hip-hop, early DJs and MCs were equally wary of the fat cats. These artists came from the South Bronx, after all, a place that New York and America had turned their back on. Beyond that, it was just felt that you just couldn't capture the music of live hip-hop on a record. But there was no denying the power of the music. Hip-hop was all about authenticity, and the record industry was anything but. These two forces were on a collision course, and there were many casualties in the first battle. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here with the legendary Grandmaster Melly Mel, a.k.a. Doc Rockwell, a.k.a. Muscle Simmons, a.k.a. Quentin Quarantino, a.k.a. the reason why we rap, the king of hip-hop, Grandmaster Melly Mel. Yeah! <laughs> so, Mel, hip-hop started as a live art form. Did you feel in that time that it was philosophically and on every level at odds with the record industry? Yeah, they, they just looked at it like it just wasn't really music. In the beginning, they said it would never last. And they were sure about it. And this became the dominant music. And not that it's like, just because they announced it now, it was, it, it was that in 79. Rapper's Delight was the most dominant record that I ever heard other than Thriller. You see what I'm saying? But they just didn't want to admit it, that, that the R&B era, that the disco era, that... It was in his last days, basically. And, and, and hip-hop was, was going to run the table. I didn't think it was going to run the table the way it did with the people that did it, but I was sure that it was going to be something because uh, it reinvented everything, even even the way people think about, you know, their daily lives. So uh, I think they had more of a contempt for what we was doing because it was just so unlike regular music. Yeah, I agree. I'd say that they were more at odds with us than we were at odds with them. I mean, we were trying to get into the music industry. The music industry was scoffing at we were doing like, hey, we don't take that shit seriously. And especially major labels. Major labels didn't get involved in hip hop for a while. They took a chance on Curtis Blow because he had an inside, you know what I mean, connect. But uh, yeah, hip hop didn't get commercially viable for a while. And yes, they were philosophically and on every level at odds with hip hop. The hip hop industry blossomed, opening up artists' opportunities and desires to get their music to a larger audience, even white audiences. But it took, as we say, a moment to get there. In 1979, you know, I, I signed my first record deal, right? My parents didn't know, my mom didn't know, all the group members and the crew members, their parents didn't understand the, the record business. And so with that said, prior to 1979, 
I'm on the streets of New York. I'm in the parks. I'm rocking the parks. I'm rocking all the hip-hop venues with my crew and, and my group. And here it is, someone offered you a record deal. So you thinking, okay, I, I got this record deal. And with that said, now people would be able to hear and know who, you know, I am and the rest of the group, you know, and not just within, you know, the the, the community or up and down on 195 or in Connecticut. The world would be able to see what, you know, the Funky Four and myself were doing in New York City. And so we were offered this record deal. We're thinking we're going on to whole nother level, you know, um, or, or that, that record label could take us out of New York City and up and down 195 so the world could hear us. Sugar Hill. Sylvia Robinson already had a decades-long career as an artist and producer when she first encountered hip-hop in 1979. The music had started moving from the parks and gymnasiums into uptown clubs. Sylvia and a few others were scouting talent to put a hip-hop record together and cash in, but some of the biggest names in the hip-hop scene were not interested. When he was approached after shows, Grandmaster Flash supposedly told his security team to keep the record people away from him. But as history teaches us over and over, the middleman or woman finds a way. So Mel, tell us the story of your relationship with Sugar Hill Records and how the recorded versions on Super Rapping and the message came to be. Well, our, our relationship with Sugar Hill Records started when after they put out Rappers of Light and then they had sequence, so they was looking to branch out to get other groups. So we was uh, one of the top groups just from being street music, just starting to, you know, just starting the genre in the street. And uh, we went over there and actually the first record that we did for Sugar Hill Records, Love Bug Starsky was supposed to do that record. That was Freedom. But uh, Starsky had what was called the Lisp. And if you had a lisp in the early days of recording, that didn't go over well. Now, mind you, Biggie had a lisp, and he's one of the greatest that ever did it. And that was the only reason why Lovebug Starsky wasn't on that record. And we came over and uh, and did the record, and that when that was our first record, it was called Freedom. That was the first record that we did on Sugar Hill Records. I think we had a, a great relationship. I think the marriage was good because Sylvia Robinson was such a great producer. I mean, she and she don't get her due for several reasons, but she definitely, without a doubt, she already had did the moments and love on a two-way street and pillow talk and love is strange. Like she did iconic records before hip hop, right. but she came up with the concept of recording hip hop on wax. And she did Rapper's Delight, and then she did The Message. And that was the, the reason why the rhyme from Super Rap was put on The Message, because she thought that it needed an icing on the cake. The, the message was already done. Uh, Ed Fletcher had did The Message, uh, he, but he didn't do it, but he had the song. So the song was basically done. The only thing that was added to the song was music, and then the Child is Born rhyme from Super Rapping. And that's what made that record the great record that that it was but but the main reason why it was a great record is because uh uh miss sylvia robinson uh god bless her soul put a lot of thought and work and production i think to this day that's one of the most i'm not even gonna say one of the most the most well-produced hip-hop song ever made was the message i was kind of thrown into the fray um of the sugar hill records um 
um, situation be, uh, by mistake. Actually, you know, I wasn't a, a member of a group on Sugar Hill. I wasn't an artist on Sugar Hill, but my lyrics were taken and used on the first rap hit, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. So um, whatever I know about them, I know through that and uh, the stories that I know from the artists that were signed to Sugar Hill, like Grandmaster Flash, The Furious Five, um, The Treacherous Three, um, The Funky Four Plus One More, Spoonie G, Busy B, and many others. So my association with Sugar Hill, that's the extent of it, um, being the ghostwriter for their first hit. Emboldened by the success of Rapper's Delight, Robinson doubled down on her approach to crafting hip-hop singles designed for chart-topping success. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five eventually signed with the label, and the priority became finding material for their next single. Robinson and her in-house drummer put together the tense, creeping synth and drum machine foundation for a song that will become The Message. This is the actual story of the message. This is this is how the whole thing came about. Duke Booty, which, which is, his name is Ed Fletcher, uh, uh, God rest his soul, he passed away, I think, about a year and a half ago. Uh, he had two songs. He had one song that was called Dumb Love, and he had the message. He wanted to record Dumb Love. He didn't really... I mean, he wrote the message, but the uh, the song that he liked was Dumb Love. And I remember the open line, uh, 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 I see you dancing on Soul Train. Everybody see your face, don't nobody know your name. And, and the hook was real simple, Dumb Love. And he just repeated it, Dumb Love. That was the song, that, and that was the song. So uh, Miss Sylvia said, I'll record Dumb Love on you if you let one of the other groups record this other song. And he didn't he didn't really hear the other song, so it's fine. You could, you know. You got it. Now, the message was supposed to be for the Sugar Hill Gang, because we already had a song. We had a song out. I think we had this nasty, one of, one of them songs like that, a happy birthday. We had a song out. But when they heard the song, they didn't want to do the song. And when I heard the song, I didn't necessarily want to do the song. Nobody wanted to do this song. But I seen the passion that she had in trying to get the song done. I was like, uh... If this is the ride, you better just take the ride, no matter what. I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen is the song would be a flop. And, you know, I, I just went on the ride, you know. Go in the studio. They they do the music. I put the Child is Born rhyme on it. And it took three days to mix the song. Every time she, the first day, she'd take the board up. She wouldn't let nobody in the studio for three days until it was precisely, exactly the way she wanted it. And and the song came out seven minutes and 11 seconds long. And then when the song was done, I I still didn't, nobody really heard it. I mean, even, even Joe Rob, he would just be, you know, husband, he would just be in the studio, his arms is folded. You know, that's his wife. He gonna, he gonna back her hand no matter what it was. And uh, I didn't hear it. Nobody heard it. And this was around the time Planet Rock was the hot song out. So now this is in July. She comes up in the fever. She's going to play the song. She got a big diamond ring. You know, she's all gussied up with the champagne. And the song, a song is playing. And then she tells the DJ, okay, just play the song. Oh, yeah, this is our, our new uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five song, The Message. And, you know, do-do, tat, do-do. 
and it was it was like maybe Planet Rock or, or Play at Your Own Risk or something was on. So people was on the floor dancing. I'm thinking everybody just gonna leave the floor, but they didn't. They stayed there. They listened to the song, and it wasn't like everybody was like, "Yo, the song is dope. The song is dope." But they didn't not like the song. But everybody stayed on the dance floor. When it got to radio and when it got to the general public and when it and really when it got to the critics, that's when the song became the phenomenon that it became to be. Because that was the song that if you didn't like rap, that was the song to like. Or if you if, uh, if, if rap was trying to grow on you, that was the song that made rap legitimate. Because other than that, every song before that was just some guy and he's talking shit. That's basically that's that, that's basically and to this day that's basically what hip hop is, you know. Oh, uh, that's why I don't believe in in the greatest of all time because this is just a guy that's talking trash. But the message was the song that uh it broke all the mold for hip hop. It was it was socially relevant. It had commentary. It had substance. And to me to this day, I mean it's the greatest, it's one of the greatest songs of all time, but hands down, it's definitely the greatest hip hop song of all time. After the message came out, that was my coming out party. Not saying that I separated myself from the Furious Five, because I was I was the lead guy anyway. I mean, I wrote every song that we did, I wrote every song. Like they wrote the rhymes, but I put together all the switchos, the routines, you know, uh, uh, I, I put all that together. But when the message came out, it was like, that was the Melly Mel coming out party. That was the first conscious song. You know, we went on to make, you know, a couple of other songs, you know, uh, you know, the King of Conscious Rap. And it definitely changed the dynamic of the group, not more so from the MC aspect, like the rest of the guys, but definitely for Flash. He took the message a little different. You know, he, he, I mean, to this day, he probably, it, he don't wear it right. You know, I mean, if, if you're a group, you're a group. But, you know, he, he just, it, like like I said, and, and that and that was the one dynamic that it kind of it threw the group off, per se. But it made us, I mean, it made him who he is. So, I mean, you know, I don't know, you know. But it definitely, it definitely was a difference in the dynamic of the group after the message came out. The song remains one of the most important in the hip-hop canon, not just musically, but culturally and financially. It was an inflection point. There was no going back. Unfortunately, some people were going to be left behind. As far as getting signed to a, a record deal or buy a recording uh, company, we were reluctant. When I say we, I'm talking about my group, the Cold Crush Brothers, and many other uh, cats were reluctant because we were just satisfied being, you know, street superstars, ghetto superstars. We were vying for street um, credibility. And uh, we didn't feel like we had to make a record. Um, the exodus of all these artists from existing record companies to Sugar Hill Records showed that this was a label that was really going to get behind hip hop. And if you wanted your career to flourish in this new, um, this new um, platform, which was uh, the music business, that you had to go through that Sugar Hill portal um, until you know we started seeing that, okay, this is not a viable entity. Uh, most people going there wound up leaving. Um, and uh, I think the next pretty much uh, era of record companies uh, was Def Jam after that. 
Um, but I think Sugar Hill was the last big independent record company um, before the thing just went totally commercial. We didn't introduce money into the game. Okay, we did hip-hop for the love of hip-hop. And then when it became commercial and somebody put a price tag on it, then okay, that's fine with us. You can pay us for it. And then once we realized what the stakes were, we had gone years without being paid the way that we were supposed to be. So, like I said, I never brought money into the game, but if money's in the game, then give me mine. When you didn't see the money, but you know you're selling records, and you know that you were inspired and you, in, you had inspired so many different people that came after you, we're thinking, okay, where the money at? So we with this record company for the first year, enjoy. And then we go on and sign to Sugar Hill Records. And so the same thing, we're expecting to go to a whole nother level because we're seeing what that record label is doing for um, the Sugar Hill Gang, right? Because the Sugar Hill Gang came out with their song in September of uh, 1979. And then we came out with our song in November of 1979, but on a different label. But then when you had, you know, Sugar Hill Records come to us and say, we want y'all on this label, you know, we want y'all on our label. We went because we figured like they would be able to, um, you know, uh, put us in the limelight as they did the Sugar Hill Gang. But when you never really seen a dime from it, when you're making all of these songs and you're making all of these records and we're young teenagers and we just out there rocking for the cause and you realize that the record company was never for you, never for you. It was about making money and making as much money as they can out of you as a young teenager. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No labels. With the rise of SoundCloud and music streaming, the mixtape has altered form into new versions of itself once again becoming a powerful tool in the world of hip-hop. Digital release has clearly disrupted in both productive and destructive ways, but now artists like Chance the Rapper can achieve exposure and commercial success without the help of a record label. Word of mouth can spread across social media platforms just like flyers for an old-school block party. Just imagine if the Furious Five and Cold Crush Brothers could live stream their shows to a worldwide audience back in 1979. Of course, the middleman always finds a way. But hip-hop music, its creative foundations, and transcendent journey would not be the same if early artists had the opportunities that artists have today. Breaking the rules, 
finding new ways to distribute, even getting screwed by the industry and the man. All of these things add to the texture and history of the culture. The early foundations of hip-hop was essentially an early version of the term we hear so frequently today in tech, disruption. And with the taking of risk comes the taking advantage of artists. One doesn't exist without the other. I, I think the industry caught up with itself because hip-hop is a lifestyle aspect. It's not necessarily a music aspect. And just thinking about it in terms of music, is not much to really grasp onto, basically, realistically, mentally, spiritually. But to, to, from the business aspect, what you can do with hip hop, what Jay-Z did with his hip hop, you know, uh, what Puffy did with his hip hop, what Dr. Dre did with his hip hop. That, that is what makes hip hop great. The great thing in hip hop is the things that people did with their hip hop after the fact, what 50 Cent did after the fact, to where he ain't even known, he's not known for his music, he's known for producing shows. That's the greatness of hip hop. You could start out from just some guy, you know, you, you, you wrote a song, and, 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 and after you wrote that song, you became more of a success than, you know, than even you have thought you could be. And, and, and I, think, I think that's the beauty of hip hop. That's the thing, because it made giants out of guys that, if it wasn't for that, you know, you, you know, you, you just be some guy, you know, in the hood, basically. But everybody has to experience these things for themselves, okay? And uh, the pitfalls of the music industry is one thing that kind of uh, propels you forward. I mean, if you process it right, I mean, you get fucked out of money one time, then you know better the next time, okay? Um, and it's about learning these lessons as you go through these pitfalls. So I don't think it's totally necessary for you to suffer to be a musician, um, but um, it adds character to you. It's about sticking to the fabric, you know what I mean? And it's not even about being relevant in a, in a commercial sense. As long as we're relevant to the culture and to each other, you know what I mean? We already paid our dues. We already put our, you know, our work in and all that. And we could just sit back and rest on our laurels. But the fact that we don't is a testament to our love and our passion for this culture. Anytime we see a mic, we're going to spark that shit up. And it ain't a stage that we can step on, all right, that we will not burn down to this day. That's me and my tag team partner, Grandmaster Melly Mel. This is the origins of hip-hop. And we out. Looking for more Origins of Hip-Hop content? Check out the Origins of Hip-Hop television show. New episodes air Tuesdays at 10, 9 central, only on A&E. Watch live, stream, or on demand. And don't miss the exclusive after show, Origins of Hip-Hop Extended Play, hosted by me, Kaz, and the legendary Shah Rock. Premiering on video on demand after every new episode of Origins of Hip Hop on AE. This episode is hosted by yours truly, Grandmaster Kaz. Produced and edited by Bennett Barbaco and Rob Amjarv. Written and produced by Clay Seneschal. Our associate producer is the lovely Emma Damakash. And executive produced by Bennett Barbaco and Larry Adam. 
And for A&E, this episode was also produced by Aisha Jordan. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and executive producer is Jesse Katz. Thank you.